In that passage, the Lord said, fear not. That's where it started. The Lord said, fear not. Uh, Many of us are fearful for the future. I know I am. So there's an admission. Like as your pastor, one of your elders, I'm going to admit from the pulpit every week my weaknesses. That's who we are as a church. We are a church that admits weakness, that says we can get it wrong. And for me, I'm fearful for the future. We all have our personal struggles, to be sure. We have trials of various kinds, James writes, which means, I think, that if we have trials of various kinds, we ought to be kind to one another, knowing there are trials in the background we might not even know about. But for us as a society, I'm not just particularly talking about us as individuals, for us as a society, there are certain trigger words for us that cause the anxiety to rise, the fearfulness in our hearts. They appear on the news. Words like interest rates. So if you if you you know you're reading the article or you're hearing it and that word comes, you're just gripping the chair to hear what is next. Worries at work. You might hear a, a certain colleague or your boss's name, and it just it sends that fear through you. Perhaps your livelihood is on the line. We have fears for our kids' future. So we got through okay if we made it to middle age, like me. We, we got through okay, and, but, but now we're kind of fearing for our children's future. What's it going to be like for them? And then, of course, there's words like war, Ukraine, Taiwan, foreign ministers and meetings and trade. Many of us are fearful for the future. As one of your elders, one of the under-shepherds under Jesus, he knows this, we feel it too. We feel it for you, we feel it with you. Last week we reflected in Genesis 14 what it meant to live in a demanding world and we saw that there we needed to see God's delivering grace in a demanding world. That's the only thing that's going to get us through a demanding world is grace. Well, today as we come to Genesis 15 and we come with our own fears for the future, we live in a fearful world and I want to borrow a phrase from the Apostle Paul and transform it. The Apostle Paul says he's the worst of sinners or the chief of sinners. Well, I'm the first or the chief or the worst of fearfulness, of fearful people. We need, I need this passage. Because we can easily think Genesis 15 is so long ago. But as you look at Genesis 15, what you'll notice is this. Nothing has changed for human hearts, as we heard in the kids talk about human hearts, nothing has changed for human hearts in 4,000 years. This episode is about 4,000 years ago. The technology has changed, the particularities of the worries have changed, but nothing has changed in terms of how people can be fearful for the future in 4,000 years. Look at Genesis 15 verse 1, as we heard Amy read it, look at verse 1. After these things, that is after the events of Genesis 14, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, fear not. Fear not. I want you to notice something. This is the first time 
this very common phrase in the Bible is used. You'll see fear not repeated throughout the Bible. And this is the first time it's used. And it's told to Abram, fear not. Because the word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. Now, can I just speak into people that search for visions or look for visions in our day in society, even amongst churches? The word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. Of course it does. Because Abram is not blessed with what you and I are blessed with today. He doesn't have a Bible. Abram is not able to have all the scriptures that God speaks in a Bible in his lap on a Sunday morning, on a rainy day in Bendigo. He doesn't have a Bible, so of course he gets a vision from the Lord, but the vision is not about the vision. And and Abram didn't seek the vision. He didn't search for it or try and manufacture it. it. A vision is about the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord comes to Abram. And notice this as well, the word of the Lord is always timely. I think it's astonishing, like the Apostle Paul level of astonishing, right, in Galatians, when he says to a church, I'm astonished. I'm always astonished if I'm giving a reading to someone or opening the Bible with someone and they say, that's got nothing for me. And they're a Christian. Like to say that the Bible has nothing for you, that the word of the Lord has nothing for you and you're a Christian is like astonishing to me. It should be astonishing to us. But the word of the Lord comes to Abram and it's always, always timely. The word of the Lord doesn't come out of the blue as, got a proverb for you, Abram, riddle me this. The word of the Lord comes to Abram in a timely manner. The Lord is speaking to Abram's heart. Not just the issues, but his heart, where his heart is. And the issues that Abram faces is causing his heart to be fearful. And the Lord knows this. And so the word of the Lord comes to Abram. Now, sometimes we are fearful and we're not even sure why. Do you get that? Like, do you have moments you just you wake up and I'm worried about something, but I don't even know what it is? That happens to me fairly frequently. You know, and maybe it's because there's a lot on and I'm processing lots of things and just pick one off the shelf for us. But whatever it is, whether it's a whole shelf of worries or a fridge, whether we've got worries that we've kept for a long time and we perhaps think the expiry date is gone, but we still worry about them, what we need is the word of the Lord. One of the things we need is, and this is what this mental health workshop will look at in Melbourne, if you can come and members of reforming get a 50% discount, we actually need to do what Psalmist says to do in Psalm 42, 43, and that is speak to our soul with God's word and ask, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you worried? And when we do that, instead of just talking to ourselves, we're actually, in our heads, we're actually getting God's word to speak to our hearts. Well, this is what Abram does. See, after a moment of self-reflection, trying to articulate what he's feeling, Abram gets this word of the Lord, fear not. Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. And Abram then is able to articulate what he's fearful about in verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. 
and a member of my household to be my heir. Abram has been able to articulate what his heart has been fearful about, the future. He took me to this land of Canaan, Lord, and if we know the oral tradition from Noah. Noah had cursed Canaan. This is a cursed land, but you said this is going to be my land and for my family and my people, but I don't have a son. I don't have a daughter. I don't have offspring. And we know that this was the Lord's promise to Abram, particularly to Abram. We know from Genesis 12 and Genesis 13, it's repeated twice. The Lord says, to your offspring, I'll give this land. But Abram's now saying with a growing fear, as he grows older, the possibility of this promise looks slim. And he looks around at the next person in his household over the dinner table and he's thinking to himself as he eats his lamb chops, he's thinking, it's Eliezer of Damascus. It's interesting, isn't it? Not even Lot is in the picture. Lot, who is his nephew, it's just this random person we never ever hear about again in the Bible. It's, it's that guy over there, for some reason, is going to inherit the whole lot. The land, and Abram's growing concern is, I'm fearful, Lord. I'm waiting, I'm waiting on you, but I, I can't see it. Here is a famous moment of faith for Abram. This is a very famous moment. It's famous because the rest of the Bible makes it famous. The rest of the Bible comes back to this moment. When you think about it, and we read in our cross-reference reading, so you kind of got a bit of a hint, but when you hear people in the New Testament speak about being justified by faith, which is at the heart of the gospel, who do they speak about? Abram. Here is the moment for this man, Abram, that we saw in our cross-reference reading, uh, Romans 4, right? It's, it's repeated twice in Romans 4. What does the scripture say? Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Repeated again in Romans 4, 22. Here what we see is, in this moment of Abraham's fear, and the Lord speaking to him, and Abram believing what the Lord says, believing God's word, this is where Abram is shown as to be someone of faith. And therefore, he is right with God by faith in God. Here's what we see as the centre of how God saves sinners. Here is how God promises people like Abram, who are often, and we've seen Abram, haven't we? Abram is often unfaithful. Abram is often fearful because he's just like us. Remember back in Egypt? Remember, we were there in the Bible. That was awkward. Ah, uh, yeah, here's my wife. Uh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. Don't tell anyone, Sarah, that you're my wife. That went very badly. Um, by the way, a bit of a preview of what's coming in this series. He's going to do it again. He didn't learn anything from Egypt and he does it to Abimelech. And it takes pagan kings like Pharaoh and Abimelech to say, what in the world? Abram is not a perfect man, but he is justified by faith in God. Not in himself, in God. And so what is God doing here? What is he saying? 
God is showing us where this confidence in God's word comes from, God himself. That by believing the Lord, it can be counted as righteousness for you as well. That's why it's picked up and put in the New Testament again and again and again. It's in Romans. It's in Galatians, this quote. It's in the book of James. Again and again and again. The New Testament writers pick up this moment for Abram and say, this is how sinners get saved and set apart for God. That they put their faith in his word, in his promises, and they're justified by faith. This is at the heart of the gospel. Genesis 15 verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, for your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. The Lord asked Abram to count the stars. Have you ever tried that? It's a fun exercise on a summer's night. won't work today. It's a fun exercise on a summer's night to count the stars. The Lord asked Abram to count the stars, but more than the fact that you can't because they're so large in number, more than that, the point is this, the Lord is larger in his power to make promises come true. So shall your offspring be. It's a promise of numeracy, but it's based on God's veracity, on his truth. He's the God of truth. He's the God who delivers, the God who delivers on his promises. Now, friends, have a look at this. At the moment, at this point in Abram's life, right? Abram only has one thing. Do you know what it is? Yes, he's living in the land, he's living in Canaan, but he's not there as a citizen. Uh, yes, he's married to Sarai, and she's very beautiful, so that's lovely for him. You know, good on you, got a, a great marriage. Has rocky moments, but it's without children. He doesn't have offspring, let alone a star number of them. But what is the one thing that Abram has? What is the one thing, the only thing Abram has got going for him right now? Do you know what it is? God's word. That's it. All he has is God's word, God's promise. That's all he's got. And all he can do is believe it. He didn't earn it. He can't pay God back for it. He didn't deserve it. And as we'll see in a moment, he can't lose it. He's just got God's word. Abram puts his faith in God's word and God, he, counts that towards Abram as righteousness. It's interesting language here in Genesis 15, verse 6, and the way that the New Testament picks this up. Counted as righteousness. And there's, um, I can direct you to some good theological articles to look at this, what this means. But I want to tease it out briefly. Scholars, scholar theologians will often use the word reckoned. Right? It's reckoned as righteousness. Why is it important? It sounds like just rust talk and farm language. right? Why is it important? Reckoned. Counted. It's not made. So this is important. So scholar theologians will also use words like imputed or imparted righteousness. 
It's imputed to Abram. It's not imparted to Abram. There's a difference. Let me tease it out for you. When the Lord looks at Abram, who looks at a man who's just like us, a person just like you and me, often unfaithful, often fearful, he sins a lot. When the Lord sees that Abram trusts his word, what the Lord is doing, he is not imparting righteousness. He's not making Abram righteous. Abram is not now a righteous person in and of himself. His heart is not made righteous. It's still a sinful heart. Not not imparted, not made. It is counted. It is imputed. It is reckoned. It is like Abram still standing there as a sinner is at the same time declared, counted to be a righteous person. Even though he's not at heart, his heart will still produce sin, but he's counted, he's reckoned, righteousness is imputed to him. It's not imparted, it's not given him to make him righteous. It's why when sometimes we get on the fine words of this, we don't say things like, you know, uh, we, we don't say, well, that person is now righteous in and of themselves, they're made right. We'd rather say well, they're declared right. It's a declared righteousness. And all Abram has to do is receive it by believing God's word. And this means that the relationship that Abram has with God has been established. Of course, it was established earlier, but now we see by this declaration, the Lord is saying, this is how I count people as righteous, those who by faith believe the Lord at his word. Notice Abram here is not counted as righteous just because he was trying to count the stars. Abram was not counted righteous just because, well, he got through the Egypt episode, but now he's cleaned his life up a little bit, now he's a better person for it, and now he's righteous. No, Abram is only righteous by faith. He's justified. The word justified comes from the same righteousness word group in the New Testament. He is righteous, he is justified by faith and faith alone. That's how Abram is righteous. And friends, we need to see why this is so important. Because ever since the beginning of Genesis, ever since if we go back to the genesis of things back in the garden, Adam and Eve did not have a right standing with God. Why? What happened to them that that put them out of the garden? Because they did not believe God's word. They did not trust him at his word. Adam and Eve in the garden under the covenant of works, there was one law in that covenant of law, covenant of works, one law, do not eat of that tree. You get the whole thing, the whole thing is for you. But do not eat of that tree, trust God at his word and that is the one law they break. And ever since then it is not a covenant of works anymore, we're in it. it's a covenant of grace. Genesis 3 onwards is a covenant of grace all through today. And here we see that what was once good, God's good garden, his good creation and his very good humanity. What was once good then became bad. The breaking of the law, the eating of the tree, not trusting God's word, instead believing the word of a serpent instead of the one who created us. And that meant there's no way now back into God's garden. You and I cannot go back. But we try, 
And our society tries. And human-made religion tries. There is no way we can go back into God's garden. There is no man-made solution to the problem of sin that humanity could manufacture. We can't AI ourselves into it. We can't laser print ourselves into it. There's nothing we could do. And all our solutions end in death. And Genesis 15 verse 6, quoted four times in the New Testament, is there to show us the heart of the gospel is this. You are only ever justified by faith. This very doctrine is at the heart of the gospel and this very belief is attacked by Satan in a variety of ways. Namely, he doesn't want you to believe it. Namely, he doesn't want you to believe in justification by faith. He doesn't want me to think that really I'm actually justified by faith in Christ. Satan does not want this. John Calvin writes, Satan hates God justifying people by faith and fights more violently against free justification by faith than against any other teaching, striving to extinguish it and smother it. This is the way God saves sinners. And so here is God, progressively revealed throughout his covenant promises in Genesis. Here is the Lord, who by grace gives us his word. And he's saying to you, you can trust him too. You can trust him because he is most trustworthy. Now, Abram already knew this. Look at verse 7. Abram knew this because everything that's happened in Abram's life up until now, the Lord has served him, he's he's cared for him, he's loved him, he's provided for him. Verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. See, Abram's already known this, yet Abram is just like us. You know that the Lord saves you, right? If you're a Christian, you get it. Of course I believe in justification by faith. Why did Russ spend the last 10 minutes trying to convince me of the same thing I already believe? Why? Because we forget. Because we lay it aside in all sorts of ways and reasons. The human heart does not accept God's grace very well at all. Some of us are almost allergic to it. Whoa, 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 what's that? For free? Whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on. I've got to do something. I've got to earn it. Keep that thing away from me. Because if I get grace, that means I've got to give grace to others. Whoa, I don't want that grace stuff. We want law, standards that you need to meet. And then we lower our own standards and hop over them. But just make them a little too high for you. That's the human heart. Isn't it sick? Jeremiah says it's sick. The human heart is sick beyond our understanding. Abram knew that God had provided for him, but Abram is fearful. And how do we know? Because he brings it up again. In verse 8. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Abram, I love Abram for a variety of reasons. And we're going to see this again and again. He's not afraid to kind of go, I know I asked already about this, um, but I'm going to ask you like again, heaven forbid, how am I to know that I shall possess it? 
How is he to know? Well, that's what we see next. The Lord cuts a covenant. Our series in the book of Genesis is in two major parts. If you remember last year's series, Genesis 1 to 12, the story of us and the God who saves. That was our series last year. It's on our website. You can find it. By the way, I should have mentioned the service sheet's on the live stream page if you need a service sheet. But the outline is there on the screen. This series is called People of God's Covenant Promises. Now, we're a Presbyterian church. Cat's out of the bag. Um, that just means that we're, we're governed by a presbytery, we're led by a plurality of local elders, and we're shepherded by these under-shepherds. That's what a Presbyterian church is. But theologically, deeper than our governance, we are a Reformed church. And you may not know what that is either, and there's not many of us around these days, but we're growing, we're getting there. The Lord is good and kind. What is Reformed theology? Well, it's biblical, but particularly, Reformed theology is covenant theology. Meaning this, the Bible shows that we believe in a glorious God who gives grace to sinners, and he does so through covenants revealed in Scripture. There are key times in Genesis where we see God's covenant to Abram. Genesis 12, Genesis 15 today, and a few weeks' time, Genesis 17. And then, extraordinarily, we see that same covenant reiterated to Abram's offspring. And here is when we get to see where the Lord cuts a covenant himself. We see this made in verse 9 following. You saw this, didn't you? See how the Lord cuts a covenant? By the cutting up of animals. And that phrase we see in verse 18, you go to verse 18 there, on that day the Lord made a covenant. The word made that we have translated is actually the word cut. Covenants like this were cut in the ancient Near East. This is how you made a contract, a promise. There was writing and forms of doing that on tablets and round jars. But in that day, in that age, 4,000 years ago, if you wanted a contract, you want to know this was established and don't you break it and I won't break it, you did this. So we, need, we see that ancient Near East kings, they would cut covenants with vassal states, that is, suburbian kings, right? That sort of serving kings. They'd make a covenant with these city-state kings. And, and, and here is God, this king, who is like the empire king, that level, and Melchizedek is the one that says, God is possessor of heaven and earth, he owns everything. He owns it all, including the land of Canaan, to what's in your pocket. God owns it all. And the Lord here is this king that comes in and establishes, he cuts a covenant with the ground rules of this covenant with Abram. And notice, it literally involves a lot of cutting. Have a look at this. These animals are cut in half. Not the birds, perhaps they're a bit small. But the animals are cut in half to make a point. And Abram is instructed to lay the bloodied cut beasts on the ground opposite each other, the halves. He has to keep the birds of prey away, verse 12, and he falls into this biblical mode of vision where we see throughout the scriptures a great darkness falls and God speaks. The place is heavy with God's presence. 
It's symbolic of God is now there with Abram. Now remember this, friends. Verse 8, remember this. It was Abram who had prayed to the Lord in verse 8, how am I to know? How am I to know that I shall possess the land? How am I to know? Here is the answer, verse 13. The Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that, will, that is not theirs and will be servants there and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. Abram, you're going to know this. Your family is going to suffer. And this is seen later in Israel's oppression in Egypt. Yet, God's covenant promises speak to Abram and show us something important even about suffering and this suffering. Check it out. Watch this. Suffering is not a threat to God's promises. That's how big God is. Not only does suffering come along and God is not surprised by it, he plans for it. Suffering is not a threat to God's promises. You think the church is suffering? You think you're going to do your worst? You're going to persecute us around the world, put pressure on us here in Australia? You think suffering is going to cause us to stop? You think just because you make us suffer a bit and screw the thumb down? Suffering doesn't stop God achieving his purposes. It's part of the plan. And how do we know this? It's got a shape. It's cruciform. It's in the shape of a cross. The God who takes the most extreme form of suffering and says, I'm going to use that to save the world, says, my promises are not thwarted by suffering. And then he says to Abram, verse 15, Abram, you can even die in peace, no matter knowing this, no matter what happens, God's got this. God's got this. And again, the Lord gives his word for Abram to believe in, to trust in. God gives promises to the fearful. Verse 17 to 21. The Lord cuts this covenant for Abram. Now, we've said this before in our series, a series on God's promises for his covenant people. We don't use that word a lot today, do we? Covenant. I'm not sure at school, university, at your trade, at TAFE, social circles on a Friday night barbecue. I don't know if covenant comes up a lot. Perhaps in the, in the training shed with your sporting team, does covenant come up? I mean, I was thinking about this. It comes up a little bit for builders, right? And, you know, for if you have a house, the covenant might be that you can't have a pink roof because there's an overlay of covenant that says houses in this area can't have a pink roof and you are just so upset about that. But the covenant, the agreement, the promise is you shall not have pink roofs in this suburb. Maybe that. But there actually is a very common understanding of covenant in our society that we use all the time, although we don't use the word so much. Do you know what it is? It's marriage. You see, covenants are very important. Covenants are heavy promises, and marriage has heavy promises, doesn't it? What does a couple say on their wedding day? And if 
They're supposed to say it. And I do a lot of weddings. They're supposed to say, I do. Thank you, that's helpful. Or I will. But they usually say something like this. Richer, poorer, sickness, health, Game Boy, whatever that thing is. I've done a lot of weddings. People include lots of things in their vows. But the thing they're supposed to say is, till death do us part. Death breaks this. The only thing that breaks this promise is death. That's this covenant here for Abram. Look at Genesis 15. We see although covenants of this type happen in the ancient Near East between kings and servant cities or states under them, here we see a covenant that actually is a promise of death. That if you break this covenant, the promise is, if you break this contract, this agreement, this promise, in other words, may it be you become like the cut animals. That's what this covenant's about. So both kings would normally walk through the cut animals. Both kings would say, I'm going to walk through these animals, sealing this contract, signing my signature and saying, may it be, if I break this covenant, I will be a cut up piece of beast on the earth that the birds of prey will come to. May it be, I become like this. That's what they're saying. But then when you looked at Genesis 15, you noticed something extraordinary, didn't you? Did you notice? Did you see? Who walks through the cut animals? I'll give you a clue. Abram doesn't. Have a look. And for in the normal way of cutting a covenant in the world, the cutting of the blood is the blood that is shed, the death of the animal symbolizes something. For the meaning of that moment peaks with a promise. The promise puts into play when the two people breaking this covenant will become like those cut animals, right? Okay, got that. The walking symbolizes, if I should break this, till death do us part. That's what happens, right? Got that. But as you have a look, just like we saw in Jeremiah 34, which is that cross-reference passage, as you have a look, the promise here of that cutting that is deserved for sinners, the promise is for the one who walks through it. Abram doesn't walk through it. Who walks through it? God does. Symbolized by the fire pot and the flaming torch. Look at this, verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord cut a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. The smoking fire pot, the flaming torch, we've seen this, we'll see this in the Bible. When we see God come down to Mount Sinai, what happens? There's billowing smoke and flaming fire. When we see God leading Israel out of Egypt, what do we see? A pillar of cloud, a pillar of smoke. And what do we see here? Here is God by his very presence in this theophany. He comes down and this deep darkness, this heaviness settles as God is present. And God is the only one that walks through those cut animals. And as he does, do you see what's happening here? The Lord himself is binding himself to these covenant promises. The Lord himself is showing by this covenant cut, by his covenant care for the fearful, who fear all sorts of things in life, things in life, things in death, for those who fear because they know the history of humanity is so steeped in them that they are sinners too. They are failures. They can't keep covenant promises. I can't keep the promises. Very rarely make promises because I break them. But here, oh wow, do you see it? The Lord is saying when we're unfaithful, when we break this covenant, that may it be the slain, sacrifice, cut, pieces that punishment goes on God 
Not even the actual perpetrators of the promises broken. Not me, not you, not Abram, not his offspring that continue to break promises, but the one who makes the promise is the one who now promises, I'm going to take that punishment. When the promises of grace are broken, I'm going to take it. By grace we are saved through faith, friends, and this is where it gets real. Do you believe that? Now you can see how every page of the Bible points to Jesus. For just how does this happen? How does God himself take on the punishment for breaking promises? You know what he does? He comes in flesh. God the Son, he lives the perfect life that our federal head, Adam, failed to live, that you and I failed to live. He himself, God in Jesus Christ, takes upon himself the curse of the covenant that should have fallen on covenant breakers like you and me. Jesus Christ is falsely accused. Check. He is mocked. Check. He is then on a cross slain as the one cut to pieces as the sacrifice for our sins. He picks up all those checks. The price is paid. The punishment is taken. His blood shed, his body broken, his life ended. He takes on the punishment of breaking the covenant by becoming the cut-up slain piece of sacrifice. This is the new covenant in Jesus' blood. Reformed theology is covenant theology. It's a biblical worldview that is the grand reality of seeing and savoring from the scriptures. We deserve nothing. You and I do not deserve this. That's why it's called grace. No one deserves it. Not Abram, not me, not you. But God is so gracious in his covenant care for fearful people like you and me. For those who are unsure of the future, God secures our future and says, no matter what happens tomorrow, on Wednesday, next week, next year, in the next 10 years, overseas, over here, in here, no matter what happens, God has got this. We may be fearful of what's happening in the world, but by God's covenant, God is still rolling out his plan in the world, isn't he? We may be fearful for our kids, but we can trust the Lord loves them and knows them more than he knows and loves the stars in the heavens. We may be fearful for our own relationship with God that we have so blown it. We've so blown it. This is irretrievable now. I can't fix this. I've tried. No one else can fix this. We might be so fearful about that and yet look to the one who secures our future forever peace with God. As we come to have communion in the Lord's Supper, as we turn to the table, we do so now, not with a covenant that is cut by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the covenant, the new covenant in Jesus' blood. Jesus Christ is God's covenant care for the fearful, so put your faith in him in all things, whatever you fear. Do you trust in God for your righteousness? Is the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus your reward? Can I ask, what is your shield? 
What is your reward? Is it the Lord himself? Or is there something else you're holding on to tight in your heart? That's your reward, that's your shield. Is your shield your own, let's be honest now, is your shield your own self-righteousness? Do you reckon yourself right enough with God without relying upon God? Living by your own righteousness is like trying to fight a bushfire and all that radiant heat and billowing smoke of a burning bushfire with a shield made out of gum trees lacquered with eucalyptus oil. Is your reward what other people think of you? That you will suffer in their sight. Who needs their approval when you know God is your shield? Look at what he's done for you. For when Jesus goes to the cross, what does he do? He shields sinners. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our reward. Fear not. Fear not. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word came to Abram that day and through Jesus Christ has come to us today. We're asking now, this week, that our gathered worship of hearing your word and believing it, of seeing it writ large in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that this would reshape our sent worship for the week. We pray that when we have fearful days, that we would hear your word and fear not and believe resting in your righteousness in Jesus' name. We ask, we pray. Amen.